0: All right, we've got a Bible with you. We're gonna to get to work here in his word. Psalm chapter 80 is where we're gonna be, Psalm chapter 80. First of all, I think it might be helpful to get a little bit of an introduction to the historical backdrop. So, historical backdrop of Psalm 80 seems to be the Assyrian invasion which took place in 722 BC. It brought the downfall of the northern kingdom. The people in the northern kingdom were carted off into exile in Assyria. It was one of the deepest uh, moments of travail in the entire thousands year running story of the Old Testament. And and sort of there's some breadcrumbs and some clues in the passage that indicate that that's probably the backdrop. So for example, the gravity of the psalm and the language in the psalm itself, the tribes that are mentioned in the first two verses are particularly northern dwelling territories. So Benjamin and Manasseh and Ephraim and then the, the Greek translation of this passage in the ancient Greek translation, the Septuagint, includes a little note of ascription that says concerning the Assyrian. And so there's reason to believe that that's probably the backdrop that's here. So if that's the Assyrian invasion in 722 and you back up from there to find out how did that happen? What what went wrong in the Old Testament? You back up about 200 years before that, everything's blowing and going. David hands it off to Solomon. They're at the top of the world. It's sort of the 80 golden years in the entire Old Testament under Solomon. The United Kingdom of Israel, everybody's together in the monarchy. And then, and then Solomon dies and Rehoboam comes up and then next thing you know, everything just starts to spiral down. And the, there's a division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom just did an absolute nosedive into apostasy, turning away from God into all kinds of wickedness, idolatry, child sacrifice, all kinds of stuff was going on. God is meanwhile sending whistleblowers he's sending Amos, he's sending Hosea and they're sounding every alarm they can get their hands on to say, turn around, this is is disaster, this is destruction, this can't happen and Israel's just blowing them off left and right, not listening to what the prophets were saying and meanwhile Assyria is gathering strength and Assyria for whatever motivations they had, evil ambitions, a political war machine driving her on, ultimately it was God sovereignly ordaining the exile of his people to to bring judgment to their tenacious rebellion against him their betrayal of their covenant Lord. And so as we read Psalm 80, you can almost imagine the psalmist sort of perched at the northern edge of the southern kingdom, uh, looking out at at sort of smoke rising over Ephraim and Manasseh and distant lands to the north and Benjamin. And and so this psalm, it's, it's, it's stretched over a very difficult and dark period of Israel's history, but it has relevance for our own lives. This isn't just intriguing, fare for people interested in historical matters in the Old Testament. This psalm has deep relevance for our lives. Among other things, Psalm 80 answers the question, how do you pray when you realize you're far from God? And how do you pray when you when you realize that those closely connected to you are far away from God. And so this person in the southern kingdom is praying for his brothers and sisters, the fallen kingdom to the north, and there's just this deep pathos, this passion, this this desire to see God's glory shining among his people again, and so that brings us to Psalm 80. Follow along, I'm gonna start reading in verse one. Listen, shepherd of Israel, who leads Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine on Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Rally your power and come to save us. Restore us, God. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. That, that's a chorus that's gonna be repeated in verse three and seven in the last verse of the chapter. He goes on to say, Lord, God of armies, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them the bread of tears and gave them a full measure of tears to drink. You put us at odds with our neighbors. Our enemies mock us. Here it is again. Restore us, God of armies. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. You dug up a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots toward the river. You can tell he's talking metaphorically about something that happened in the history of Israel. And then he comes ahead to the modern moment, verse 12. Why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass by pick its fruit. Boars from the forest, tear at it, and creatures of the field feed on it. Return, God of armies, look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine that your right hand planted, the sun that you have made strong for yourself. It was cut down and burned. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand, with the son of man you have made strong for yourself. Then, so once that happens, verse 17 happens, then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord, God of armies. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. We love the truth that God restores his people. It's really good news. It's really good news to know that God is in the restoration business and he's still in the restoration business. We cherish that truth. Our problem is is this, the restoration that we need isn't always the kind that we want. So there's pain in this restorative grace of God. Psalm 80 is not the kind of restoration that conjures up images of, of flowing brooks and green pastures. Psalm 80's restoration hurts and it hurts for a reason. It hurts because sometimes we get hooked on things that are killing us. And so God's restorative grace can be painful because he's tearing us out of the hands of our idols. That's something of what he's praying for here. So what do we do when we realize we've drifted far away from God? And this psalm addresses this. This psalm directs our attention to three places. The first is this, the shepherd. Who God is. Who God is. So he thinks about God's title as Shepherd, and then he thinks about the promises that God has made about his people. So look again at verse one and two. Listen, shepherd, the title comes in the second word. Shepherd of Israel, who leads Joseph like a flock. That's what you do, it's what you've been doing for centuries. You who sit enthroned, it's what you've been doing from eternity, enthroned between the cherubim. Shine, there's the request. Shine on Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Rally your power and come to save us, so some background might help here as well. So these tribes, right? so he's mentioning Joseph by name and Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin. These are Rachel's kids. If you're familiar with the earlier story of this family, the family of Israel in the patriarchal period back toward the end of Genesis, you pick up on all these stories and the relationships that are here. These are Rachel's tribes. So remember Rachel married Jacob. And Jacob's name was then changed to Israel. And, and Rachel couldn't get pregnant. And it was completely devastating to her because she could not get pregnant. She wanted to give children to her husband. And meanwhile, her sister, who was also married to Jacob, couldn't not be pregnant. So practically, Jacob would wink at Leah and she ends up pregnant, right? And so, and, but here's Rachel, she, she's dying. She, she literally says, give me children or I will die. And she groans for this and she prays for this and finally in God's grace he hears her prayer he opens her womb and she has a child named Joseph and he's the one mentioned right there in verse 1 that's her son and he's the one with the fancy coat in the book of Genesis, right? And Joseph Joseph is the youngest of all the sons at that point and and he's got all these half-brothers all around him, right? And then Rachel gets pregnant again and Genesis 35, it's this really moving account. It's a moving account because Joseph gets a baby brother and loses his mom at the same time. And literally, the text says, when it describes the birth, that that Rachel's giving birth to her second son, and it says, in her dying breath, she named him Ben-Oni. Benjamin. And that's the other son of hers in this text. And the other two names, Ephraim and Manasseh, are Joseph's sons. So these are her sons and her grandsons. These are Rachel's boys, Rachel's tribes. And, and Joseph, when he has these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he has them while he's in Egypt. And when he finally reunites with his dad, with Jacob, at the end of Jacob's life, he, he sees them as so special. He had lost track of his son for so long and he sees this, these two children born to him in Egypt and he adopts them, functionally adopts them as his own sons. If you've ever wondered, why did Ephraim and Manasseh get territory with the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of of Israel, the sons of Jacob? Why did they get territory in the northern kingdom? And the answer is because they were adopted by Jacob himself. In, In Genesis chapter 48, it reads like this. This is Jacob, in his dying hour, talking with his son, Joseph, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you and I will give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. Your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as, and then he names his own sons, Reuben and Simeon do. And so he pronounces this patriarchal, blessing over those tribes. Blessing over those tribes into the future. Well, you fast forward into the future about 1,100 years and Rachel's tribes are being carried off into judgment, carried off into exile. So in other words, it looks to the naked eye as if God's promise is failing. It looks to the naked eye as if the shepherd of Israel has no more interest in leading Joseph like a flock, maybe the other tribes, but not these guys. And it's here helpful to notice, this is in your notes, two primary pictures, primary pictures of God in Psalm 80. Gardener and shepherd. Gardener and shepherd. When Israel thinks of God as shepherd, it's It's a metaphor that bespeaks God's attentiveness to his people, God's care, his leadership, his provision in the day-to-day affairs of their life and their flourishing and thriving. You think about massive statements of faith that comprise the belief system of people, saints in the Old Testament. So for example, this is in your notes, the Lord is God doesn't get any bigger than that statement that's made in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, this is the big truth that we bank our lives on. The Lord our God, the Lord is one and you should love him with heart and soul and strength. So that's a big statement of faith, but sitting there right there with it as you read through the Old Testament is this Lord who is God shepherds his people. He's he's not just brute power as we were singing about a moment ago. He's merciful and mighty. He He's a covenant Lord. He's personal toward his people. He shepherds his people. Those two clauses taken together cover so much of Old Testament faith. You think about how many Israelites over the centuries sang, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And this was an Anchor for their souls, this was soul-steadying. In other words, God as shepherd wasn't meant to simply be a theological formulation in Israel, it was a soul-steadying reminder of God's intention toward his people. That's what it meant. And so this psalmist right out, front he's getting he's getting their eyes up and out hey look look up the shepherd of Israel is there lead Joseph like a flock do what you're able to do do what you've promised to do he's directing our eyes to the central claim of not only the Old Testament but arguably the central claim of the New Testament I love what theologian John frame he writes these words he said if the Shema so Deuteronomy 6 the Lord is one If the Shema summarizes the message of the Old Testament by teaching that Yahweh is Lord, so the confession Jesus is Lord summarizes the message of the New Testament. In other words, if you could summarize everything that you learn about God in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh is Lord. And if you could summarize everything you know about God in one sentence in the New Testament, it is Jesus is Lord and he shepherds his people. God is the Lord and he shepherds his people, and then in the fullness of time, we see this crystal clear picture of the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and he is God and he is shepherding his people, so it's no surprise when he comes in the fullness of time, stands up, finds a voice, teaches, and what does he say? John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and he's not just talking because you check him out moments later and he is laying down his life for the sheep on the cross, he he actually does it. That central prayer that's repeated in verse three, you see it in verse three and seven and 19. Restore us, make your face shine so that we may be saved. We see that in Jesus. In the fullness of time, we see all that going on. The way that God does this restoring work among sin-addicted people is he sends Jesus Jesus restores us to God. Jesus reconciles us to a holy God. This prayer for God's face to shine. What does John 1 say about the incoming Jesus who's entering into the world? John says, we beheld his glory. God's face shining out through Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full, radiant with grace grace. And truth you think about the cross where God's glory shines most brightly right where his his love and his justice are seen in glorious full display as Christ bears our sins dies in our place as our substitute bears the punishment that we deserve from a holy God and he bears that in our place and then he rises again to give new life to all who believe that's the central story of the gospel All of that is happening. All that restoration work that God is doing, it's of that kind. It's of a saving kind. God, this is the story. This is God's restorative work in the world. He is making people right with him through Jesus. All the restoration God wants to do in the world is tied to that. That's the kind that he's after. God is making people right with him through Jesus. That's what God wants to do every Sunday here wants to call out to every man and woman and child and say, be right, I sent my son, he's covered your sins, he went to the cross, trust in him, turn from your sin, be saved, be forgiven of all your sins, receive eternal life. That's what it's all about, that's why we preach the gospel every Sunday, that's why we sing the gospel every Sunday. This is the restoring work that God is doing in the world. And if you have run to that Jesus in faith and you have made him your Lord, you are invited, this is the next point, to pray in the knowledge that God is sovereign and he is your shepherd. He's not just a shepherd. He is your shepherd. This psalm is confident in God. The psalmist Again, you just imagine him there looking at the smoke billowing up to the north, which testifies to, mili- to Assyria's absolute military dominance. And he's praying something audacious shine, and we will be saved. You shine on us, and we're restored. You shine on us and we will not turn away. You shine on us and we will call on your name. This shining is a powerful, efficacious, transforming work in the soul of his people. So the psalm moves from the shepherd to the struggle, moves from who God is to where we are. Point number two the struggle. And here again in verse four, he starts with God and describes him as you see those words there Lord, God of armies. Sometimes translated, Lord of hosts. It's what you sing in the mighty fortress is our God when Luther writes, Lord, sabbath his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle. It's It's this picture of God's absolute dominance over everything. All the forces in the world are at his beck and call. He is in charge. The forces in the world, the forces in heavenly places, Echoes themes that we read in other places in scripture, like Psalm 133, where it says, For I know that the Lord is great, our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he, that is God, does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is absolutely all-powerful and sovereign. The books that I was reading that I've referred to many times before in the driest season of my own spiritual life, I was reading these books about 20 years ago and didn't prefer to think of God in Psalm 135 types of ways or Daniel chapter four types of ways. I read books that... It said, you know, God didn't even, God didn't know that Adam and Eve were going to sin in the garden. He rolled the dice, literally used that illustration. He rolled the dice, he took a chance on love and things went south in a way that he didn't anticipate and now he's wringing his hands and trying to figure out what to do with it to get it to its its end, the end goal that he had in view when he started the whole thing. And that was the sort of picture of God. And, and I was struggling with faith and drying up on the inside and then I'm Reading through the Bible, reading through Isaiah, reading through Romans, and then I started reading through a book that was written by a professor at Southern Seminary named uh, Dr. Bruce Ware. Great little book, and the book was entitled Your God is Too Small. It was actually a short little book, and Ware just takes the reader into the scriptures to see that the God of the Bible is not worried, he's not confused, he is not wringing his hands, he's not intimidated, he can't spell the word intimidated. He doesn't know that experience from the inside. He, the God of the Bible, is large and in charge. He is sovereign. And so we can trust him, even with the hard things. The point of that book was, especially with the hard things, we can trust a God who is sovereign and who cares for us, a God who is merciful and mighty. That's the very kind of God we would wanna run to. Right? Your, look, your view of God will shape the size of your prayers. Your view of God will shape your outlook on life and the way that you approach him. The psalmist knows something of the power of the God who is, you see what he says there, the one enthroned between the cherubim. What is that, right? So if you want, if we could back up in history, in time, and go back to the tabernacle, or go back to the time of the temple. If you wanted to locate and put a pin on Google Maps at the scariest place on earth, it was between the cherubim. The cherubim's wings stretched out over the mercy seat. That was the throne of Yahweh. You touch it, you die. Ask Uzzah. He puts his hand to steady the ark, and he's incinerated on the spot. It is the holiest place of all. It is it is fear factor on steroids. That's the place. It is, and the blazing holiness of God was most concentrated right there between the cherubim. That was, that was ground zero of the blazing, blazing brightness of the glory of God. And he said, that's, that's where you are. You sit enthroned in that place of holiness and power and sovereignty, there's a sobering sound in this text because we hear about God being angry, but it doesn't say, if you expected it to say, how long will you be angry with your people's sins, that wouldn't surprise us. But it doesn't say how long will you be angry with your people's transgressions or sins, it says what? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You go back in Old Testament history and the hypocrisy reached such heights that the people of God would say the temple of the Lord, they would say it three times in a row as if it was a rabbit's foot, as if it, it warded off evil spirits and warded off opposing powers, just saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they acted as if nominal adherence to the religious forms of Judaism, guaranteed God's blessing over them as a people. And so they offered their sacrifices. They lived a completely double life. They're attending this or that church event, right? Sounds a lot like like Birmingham. That's kind of where we live, right? Welcome to the Bible Belt, where everybody knows God. Where everybody's walked an aisle, everybody's prayed a prayer, everybody's done a sword drill. That's that's where we live, often where where nominalism thrives, the aspect of God's character that gets left aside is this holiness piece. It's this aspect of his holiness, his his blazing brightness, his purity, that he's in a category all his own, he's separate from from the rest of the world and the rest of creation. He is ultimately the self-sufficient, uncreated Lord of the universe. Those truths are neglected. They're just dusted aside. All we talk about is God's love and his mercy and his compassion and his kindness. So truths about God's justice, truths about God's judgment are ignored. Truths that he He is a God who does not tolerate evil. That's biblical truth. He does not tolerate evil. He doesn't doesn't wink at our rebellion as if it's cute. It's not his response. He doesn't let us define right and wrong. That's not an option that we have. He doesn't invite us to haggle over the terms of repentance. Repentance. He says, this this is what it is, he won't be your co-pilot. It's the God of the Bible, he he probably won't even let you be his co-pilot. He is sovereign, he is Lord. Look, I I love our city. I wanna see Jesus glorified in our city, but it is dangerous to live in Birmingham, Alabama. It's dangerous to live here because you can be, you can be born here and live your whole life and die telling yourself, telling yourself that you know God, when in fact you've never had a thoroughgoing, real knowledge of Christ, and following him as Lord. That's possible, there's no evidence of his lordship in our lives. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that hell will be full of people who do churchy type activities, spiritual activities, and stand before him and think that that's a substitute for following him as Lord. He says, Depart from me. We actually never knew each other. We we have this is the first time we've met. This is in your notes. There's nothing more dangerous than playing religious games. The ultimate reason in verse five that Israel is eating bread soaked in tears, salty bread because it's soaked in their tears, isn't because Assyria had a bigger army. It's because Israel didn't take God seriously. And in verse five, Israel weeps, finally. 722 BC, Israel finally weeps. Amos couldn't get her to do that. Hosea couldn't get her to do that. And even there, she's not weeping because of her sin against God. She's not weeping because she's tested his patience for a thousand years, literally over a thousand years. That's not why she's weeping. They're weeping because stinks to be in exile. That's why. How true that can be for us as well. This is in your outline. We're often more concerned about our hardships than our sins. Israel's sorrow, to borrow from the Apostle Paul, was worldly sorrow. It was not sorrow leading to repentance. It was the sorrow of a person who thought he could outrun the reaper. It was the sorrow of a person who thought, who was upset because the consequences of his actions caught up to him. That's the sorrow, that's why the bread is wet with weeping. Oh, come into our moment here in the 21st century. Oh, for a comeback of real repentance in the church of Jesus Christ. For a revival of humility before God reverence before our holy Lord and King where we step out into the light and we own all the mess that we are and all the mess that we've made. We own it fully. No excuses, no fine print, no caveats or qualifiers. We have made a mess of your name. Please look on us in mercy. Please cause your face to shine on us. Oh for, oh, for corporate lament of the many evidences that the visible Church of Jesus Christ, instead of displaying contentment in Christ, we have the same insatiable appetite for money and wealth and power as our unbelieving neighbors do. Instead of taking risks of faith and obedience for the glory of Christ, we cling to safety in the familiar. Right, this is us a corporate lament instead of holding fast the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation we're the crooked we're the perverse we hear God's word just coming with crystal clarity and prophetic edge he's telling us you got one job one job church of Jesus Christ and here's it's crystallized in this passage so so well first Peter chapter 2 verse 9 you are a chosen race it's what you are a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you're God's people. Mercy has surprised us, right? We we weren't, and now we are. You had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves. Here's how to live. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. We have one job. We're called to be light bearers. And, and sadly, this is so easy, we can be the kind of church, capital C church or local church, we can be the kind of church that just dabbles in the things of God. Right, we just, we just play footsie with spiritual things. It's just religious games and we can become dull of sense, dull of conscience, dull of spirit. It's so insensitive that we quench the spirit and we're so distracted amid all the entertainment, we don't even realize when he left. And Jesus is talking to churches in the book of Revelation. He says, I'll come and get your lampstand. I will pull that lampstand straight out from under you. This is sobering words. What do we say to God when that's where we are? As a capital C church of Jesus Christ, what do we say? Here's what we say Restore us. God of armies, Lord of hosts, we need a sovereign God in moments like this. We need you to shine and shine in such a way that we're changed. It transforms us so that we may be saved, so that we may be delivered. Look, Brook Hills, please hear me. Apostasy is easy, it is not hard. Ask Ephraim. Ask Manasseh, fast forward about 120 years, ask Judah, fast forward a little bit longer, ask Demas, who has loved this present world and he's forsaken me, one of Paul's boys. Ask Laodicea, it's not hard. And so what we do every Sunday is is so important because every Sunday is a gospel renewal ceremony. we are renewing ourselves in the gospel. Every Sunday is a reminder in song and in prayer, in commissioning, in the preaching of the word, it's a reminder that while we are thankful for many things, common grace in all of its aspects, we serve no God but Jesus Christ. We say that to each other, Loudly every Sunday, we proclaim no other message but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We commit to no purpose but praising and reflecting and spreading the knowledge of his glory to the ends of the earth. That It's our one thing. We renew ourselves in this truth, this covenant. It is because it's so easy to drift. We're not above that. I'm not above that. We need God's restorative grace. So this psalm takes us on a journey from who God is to where things are to the solution, what we need. What we need, here's what we need. We need God to do something about our waywardness, our wayward hearts, about our mission drift. This is in your notes. Hope comes as we remember the story. This is, I think what the psalmist is doing underneath each one of these verses is I, f- I feel like what he's saying is I know what you're up to. I know where this story has been and I know where the arrow is flying and he's praying in the direction of hope. I know you made promises to your people. He knows the Bible. This is a a review of ancient history that has led up to that moment. So he travels back with you hundreds of years to God's mighty act of redemption in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. And he tells that story under the metaphor of God planting a garden. And in the course of just verse eight, through a few verses, he walks you through 800 years of Old Testament history. Verse eight has you situated right there in the 15th century B.C., It's the Exodus, and that's when he says, you dug up a vine in Egypt. That's when you went, you pulled up the vine, you picked them up out of Egypt, you were taking them somewhere. He fast-forwards 40 years to verse nine, where he says, you cleared a place. What's that? That's the walls came tumbling down, and God was clearing place to put his people, he planted them in the ground in the promised land. In verse 10 and 11, you fast-forward another 400 years. David's on top. Solomon, so it's the, it's the height of the glory of the United Kingdom of Israel in the days of the monarchy. David's on his throne. Israel's vine is flourishing. It's stretching from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River, just as was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 11. It's all happening just like he promised centuries before. The people are flourishing. They're strong. The vine is growing. They're in God's place underneath his rule and blessing until you get to verse 12. Verse 12. Why have you broken down its walls? So what happened between the height of the Golden Age and the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C.? And he knows the story. And he, he also knows, he knows what those prophets have been saying. Amos and Hosea and even Isaiah that, that God was saying to his people, I'm gonna tell you before you go into exile, one, you're going into exile, it's inevitable at this point, your, your resistance and rebellion is so, is so entrenched, you're gonna go into exile. But exile's not gonna be the last word. And the the prophets were constantly saying, exile's not gonna be the last word. There would be a return. There will be a restorative work of God. And we know in the fullness of time what that would look like. God would send Messiah. His hand would be, this, this, this language that's even here, Is that stretching forward? Is that tipping its hat toward the coming Messiah? His hand would be with the man, he says, at his right hand, the son of man who he would make strong. And what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? He says, I'm the true vine. I'm going to embody the people of Israel called out of Egypt. I called my son. He would obey where Israel disobeyed. He would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, which which says this, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah 40 was the comfort passage in the Old Testament. It was was an Old Testament sneak peek into Romans 8. They didn't have Romans 8 yet, but they had Isaiah 40 and it sort of opened up a little window into Romans 8, a reminder that God's sin-addicted people. He wasn't done with them. He was gonna work in their hearts. He was gonna gather his lambs to himself and nothing would separate them from their covenant Lord. Isaiah 40 was an early version of Romans 8 and what was it that Jesus did to gather a bunch of sin-addicted people to himself and begin the mission of restoration? He said, if I be lifted up, what happens? I will draw all people to myself. That's why Charles Spurgeon called the cross the marvelous magnet it's just pulling the nations to himself because out from the cross is shining the glory of the justice and mercy of our God and he's just pulling the nations to himself through the gospel. In verse 17, God taps the man in his right hand, the son of man, God makes him strong and he completes his task, the son of man completes his task, he says, it is finished and what's the effect of that it is finished on the life of the people of God? Verse 18, they'll call upon his name Once the Son of Man has done his work, we start calling on his name. And what happens after Jesus ascends and gives power to his people through the Holy Spirit? They start proclaiming this gospel of Jesus Christ. People start calling on his name. Paul says, go and tell them the word and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ is gonna shine out through the message of the gospel. This psalmist, he knows some things about God that are back there in the soil of ancient history, he knows how sinful they are, and he knows how strong a redeemer God is. He knows both of those. And so he says, God, hey, listen, listen, shepherd, lead Joseph like a flock. In a sense, to borrow from Ephesians 4, lead captivity captive. Lead a train of people in your wake whose chains have been broken because of you've shined on them and they're transformed by glory. We, look, we can say the same thing. We don't have it in our power. We can own this same weakness. We can say we are weak, God. Our spiritual resume is a joke. We can't pick ourselves by up. Our up by our own bootstraps. Temptation's too powerful. The the pleasures of sin are so enticing. The comforts of this world make me sleepy toward the kingdom of God. We can own that in his presence. And then this chorus comes barreling in in verse three and seven and 19. Restore us. You've got options, you're a God of armies. Do something awesome, rock us, shine and we're home, shine and we're safe, shine and we're delivered from all of this. Look, we are not changed by looking in, but by looking up. We are not changed by looking in, but by looking up. Where he shines, people are saved. That's why we read the Apostle Paul saying, we are transformed, by beholding we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another here's the good news. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you're gonna find this to be true. That God will never give up on the work that he has started in you. He won't, he won't give it up. But sometimes that'll hurt. Sometimes the restoration that we need isn't always the restoration that we want. If, if we have trusted in Jesus, you, you can't sin and enjoy it the way that you used to It's not satisfying the way that it was before because God is determined to get you home. He's determined to keep you out of hell and he's gonna pull out all the stops. He's gonna pull out all the stops. Sometimes it may seem like God is coming near and and his presence feels more like burning than blessing. He may bring heat to your life if it means that you'll be more fully his. He's got options. He'll use them even if it hurts us. If we cling to the things that are killing us, God won't always whisper sweet nothings in our ears, and He won't always knock on the door all day long. He might blast the thing off its hinges, and He might tear you out of the jaws of your favorite idols, and it'll hurt, but He'll be saving you. This is a grace. Grace gets violent, grace gets real. He's not afraid. He'll tear us out of the grip of our idols. The God of restoration in Psalm 80 leads his people like a flock. He sits enthroned. I love just these verbs that come at us. He rallies his power. He comes to save us. He restores, shines, digs up, drives out, plants, clears, makes vines spread and flourish. He cuts and burns away whatever's hindering us. This is the restoring grace of God. It's what he does among his people. Maybe we didn't realize it fully on the day of our conversion, but those are the things that you asked God to do when you said, save me. You asked him, cut and burn if you have to. Prune branches, rally your power, dig up, clear out, drive out, plant, make things flourish, do what you do. Friends, our final assurance is not something we produce in ourselves. Our final assurance is that God's face shines on us in the gospel. And moment by moment, day by day, by his grace, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He shines and we are saved. And he preserves us through shining on his people in the gospel.